Hello, and welcome back to The Rewind. I'm Josh, and this is a podcast where I watch a bunch of movies and talk about them with my friends. Today's episode is about Barry Lyndon, Stanley Kubrick's 1975 film, Oscar-nominated for Best Picture, and I am happy to be joined by my friend Elijah Howard to talk about this one. Elijah, thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me back, as always. Yeah, so I was excited to invite Elijah to talk about Barry Lyndon, because I feel like it actually is, um, it actually shares some DNA, in my opinion, with a couple other movies we've talked about before on the podcast, and uh, it was one of the few uh, essential Barry Lyndon movies I hadn't seen, as I talked about last week when I had our friend Josh Brown on to talk about Dog Day Afternoon to fill in that very important gap in Sidney Lumet's filmography for me. I'm trying to kind of do that as we go and revisit old movies and as long as these the theaters are closed. And this seemed like another logical one to do because I had actually just watched Dr. Strangelove not long before I did that podcast with Josh. And I thought, oh, I know uh, Elijah's seen this movie. It's even come up on this podcast a time or two before, I think, when I've been had Elijah as a guest. So it seemed like a, a good one to talk about. Uh, but yeah, Barry Lyndon is based on an 1844 book called The Luck of Barry Lyndon by William Makepeace Thackeray. It recounts the life of a fictional Irishman early on in the film named Barry Redmond as he has various ups and downs and travels throughout his life that put him into various levels of society and wealth and he's has to fight his way through the Seven Years' War to get there and then he's just fighting his way up through the British social hierarchy. And that's pretty much it, but a lot happens in between because this is a three-hour and eight-minute movie. So um, there's certainly a lot to talk about and a lot to unpack, and I'm very glad to have Elijah here to do it because this movie has just a lot of stuff going on, and I could use Elijah's expertise in probably trying to get even more out of it than I already did. Uh, Elijah, I know you've uh, you definitely already seen this movie before, and it, I... Again, I said I was happy to have you on because it, it had come up a couple times in other podcasts we had talked about, or or I should even say I think a couple things in this movie made me think about other movies we had discussed, but it, it more so than any other one came up, I think, when we talked about The Favorite because you're talking about a um, just a, a period piece. And is, is The Favorite 18th century or is it 17th century? Uh, I can't remember. Um, uh, Queen Anne would have been the beginning of the 1700s, late late 1600s, beginning of the 1700s. Yeah, so, so. Not, not too far apart, I guess, in time period within a century. Uh, but yeah, but that also, but just a movie of that kind of general time period uh, that had a uh, at times comedic tone. And uh, this movie isn't as comedic throughout as something like um, The Favorite, but certainly has its moments. So Elijah, I guess uh, just to start off a little big picture, uh, what I guess. I guess I'll, I guess first I'll start by asking about it in terms of Stanley Kubrick's filmography because it's something that you're probably way more familiar with than I am, even as I'm trying to do a better job of seeing all of his movies. Uh, where does where does this kind of sit for you when you think about it? Because I mean, I feel like he a lot of his other movies, like I, I, like I said, I just saw Doctor Strange Love, and that's obviously very funny, but a lot of them really, really are not as comedic in tone. So out of some of the later period movies that he did, if you want to say anything after 1970, this certainly seems like it kind of stands out for both its style and its content. Yeah, I mean Kubrick is is an interesting character as a as an artist because you know he's definitely he is an auteur. I mean he uh, you know from the from the definition sense he worked with the same people. Um, he has he definitely has very similar stylistic uh, elements in his films, but at, at the end of the day, all of his films kind of stand apart and are you know have have pretty distinct. Uh, personalities to them, if you will. And uh, I think it's, you know, uh, uh, Kubrick fans will spend a lot of time trying to break down his films into different eras and his work and whatnot. But, you know, this movie was three years after 2001, which is a completely, you know, totally different film. 
I'm sorry. It's, it's we started, he was, started making it like three years after 2001, probably, right? Or right, some somewhere. Well, so Clockwork was uh, before that. Oh, right, so right, I'm right, sorry. Right. This was this was closer to like five years after 2001. Yeah. But I mean, even still, you compare it to something like Clockwork, which you know that came out. I want to say in 1971 or yes, 72 or somewhere right in there. Um, and that is not, I would say, anything like Barryland. It's not like it's not anything like 2001, and Barryland is not anything like Clockwork. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they there is similar elements but feel like if you could say one thing about Kubrick it'd be that he only made films that he was interested in um which is to say that you know each of his films very much feels like he kind of got you know intellectually obsessed with one thing and sort of went down the logical rabbit hole of it and eventually made a movie out of it. And so for something like Barry Lyndon, you know, it's it stands alone. It has stylistic similarities in some places to his other movies, but it feels very much like a singular product. Like there was something that was on Kubrick's mind that made him want to do this movie. I'm glad and, you said I'm glad you said that because I, I, I when you say that I can kind of see what that one thing would be for a lot of these other movies I've already rambled about since we started, whether it be uh Doctor Strangelove and, you know, just the kind of the terrors of uh, of of weapons of mass destruction and the governments that control them or clockwork and all the disturbing things he's exploring there, but, uh, or like the military and full metal jacket or whatever. Like, I, I feel like I can almost pin down if you put a gun to my head, like, Oh yeah, he was really interested in that when he made that. Would you say he's like really interested in like British social hierarchy in the mid 18th century? Like, what do you think is the one thing he was thinking about when he set out to make this movie then? I, I would honestly say that, and that's a, that's a great question because uh, from a from a historiographical sense, from you know Kubrick's own life, this movie, and that that's what I got a little confused a minute ago. Uh, he started working on this. He started working on an an idea after two thousand one that was supposed to be a film about Napoleon. Right, right. I saw that. Um, and that you know ballooned out into this great big research project that he had been you know that he worked on for years and years, and then it just sort of fell apart. He couldn't get the funding for it, and you know, and then Waterloo came out in 1970, and that film was a, a wreck. And so he, you know, nobody wanted to produce his movie, his, his Napoleon movie. So he kind of took it and developed it. Um, but I would say that if we're going to make distinctions about Kubrick's films and c- try to lump them together and make you know distinctions uh, and you know make eras or groups of his movies, I would say that. Films like Clockwork Orange and Full Metal Jacket and Doctor Strangelove are modern films about current affairs. Basically, they are, and sometime in some cases, like uh, you know, Clockwork takes place in a dystopic f- yeah. future, and the uh, Full Metal Jacket takes place for when that movie came out. It was taking place in the past, you know, during Vietnam. So relatively uh, contemporary. Relatively contemporary, but they're they're besides the settings, the the focus of the films are on things that are occurring in the world at that time period. I would say that Barry Lyndon bears more in common with something like 2001, to be honest, in terms of its what it's interested in. And I think that for Barry Lyndon, just like it was for 2001, there is a greater metaphysical, a greater philosophical question or, or conundrum that's kind of bogging down Kubrick and I think that's why that's where that move that's where Barry Lyndon fits in is it is it is an examination of 
more than just you know social hierarchy, which you can certainly make a you know make a case for it being, but to me, there is a a, a looming shadow of uh, questions of death and of uh, you know of of mortality and of you know human purpose and those kind of things. I feel like just like in two thousand one, you have obviously the contemporary uh, you know. Uh, computing and artificial intelligence questions, but you you also have a lot greater, grandiose questions of human development and you know time and whatnot. And I feel like Barry Lyndon, it's reaching into that territory. It's not as psychedelic, obviously, as two thousand one, but as we talk more about it, I can I will certainly hope to explain more of my point. Well, I, yeah, I guess I like what you said about human purpose because I think that that was kind of where my head was at as I was trying to think more about this before we in, in a couple hours before we started doing this. And because uh, I guess I was trying to think like what what is really kind of like I feel, I feel like there was something I was like missing about how I was trying to like you know explain how I felt about the movie. And I was thinking like wow, you know. And this, I, I don't know how often people even talk about these two guys in comparison, but I was like, this kind of feels like almost like his version of a Martin Scorsese movie, which was like like a, a thought that came to mind with me. One, because like a, a lot of the Scorsese movies just go on and on about length, but like it also felt like it was like about a guy that like just kind of felt entitled to like something and felt like he had like a greater purpose that he was constantly searching for. And I, and I, not that like a lot of the characters in Scorsese movies are driven necessarily by like more than greed, but like that's certainly something at play in Barry Lyndon, it was just like, okay, here's a long epic where you're going to like kind of be on a guy through, be with a guy through a journey and he's going to fly too close to the sun and want more. And that's going to kind of be his ultimate downfall. And there's obviously like more to this movie than that, but that was like something I was constantly thinking about. But at the same time, I thought it was like, it used its length in a way that like Martin Scorsese movies, like don't necessarily take the time to like time really slows down in Barry Lyndon in certain stretches. And oh, I, certainly, certainly, and and, and stylistically, we can talk about that. But I just want to—I don't—I mean, yeah. I think it's it's very fascinating that you put that, uh, you know, you put those elements together as Barry Lyndon is Martin Scorsese's favorite Kubrick film. Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, but I, so it's uh, not surprising to hear. But I, I I literally had not seen that at all. I was just like, you know, I was just thinking about it. And I was like, and I said to you before we started recording, like, I think the length actually works for this movie. And I think Martin Scorsese movies certainly are held, helped by their length, but it's more just like he can just fit so much entertaining stuff into three hours and just it's nonstop. Whereas like here, I can be like, I don't know what happened for the first like hour of this movie. I was like, man, like there's a quick duel and he, he falls in love with his cousin. He joins the military and that somehow takes an hour. And I was like, what happens in between? Like that, that hour, just like, I don't know what else is in that hour. And then I thought about it. He's like, you're just sitting with, you're just sitting with uh, Barry for a, a lot of it. And I, or, or Redmond or uh, however you, whatever, I'll call him Barry. Let's just call him Barry. That'll make it easier. I don't need to distinguish between the two halves. If, if someone's watched the movie, they know who I'm talking about. But you're just sitting with Barry for so much of it that I feel like the movie then all of a sudden like hits on these, like, even if it's like hitting these lighter notes and the, the uh, snarky narration and all that throughout that kind of keeps the tone light. Like, I think this time that you're spending with them, like, allows certain moments to, like, just have, like, a much greater emotional impact than, like, a lot of times you don't feel till almost the end of a Scorsese movie where things, like, come crashing down. And that was one of the things that kind of stood out to me about this is that, like, it it, it tells, like, a fairly entertaining, beautiful, from a visual standpoint, story about a guy and a, and a lot of the same 
has a lot of similarities to Martin Scorsese movies, but it, it just kind of feels like it has these punctuations throughout uh, the movie where it's like, oh, wow, like that really hits you, whether it be like uh, Grogan dying or and it's like, oh, wow, like maybe I now understand why we kind of dwelled on that first 30 minutes of the movie so much. Or I legitimately felt something the first time he like when he when he just straight up comes comes clean to uh, the Chevalier the first time he meets him. And I was like, wow, like I'm it's kind of funny. This movie is kind of, kind of keep in these smaller acts, keeps building up to like these one emotional moments and then kind of starts and then works its way back to something else that might be a little more fun and then builds to something else. Like I thought it just kind of like in these three, three plus hours, like it just kind of like fell into a rhythm where it kept going up and down to emotional stuff. And I was like, I'm really impressed how he's pulling this off. Right. And I mean, I, I, w- I would say that my feeling about that is, that's life. Yeah. And that's the, that's the idea behind the film mm-hmm. is that we are literally watching this man's life from the, you know, inciting moment in his youth through, through his old age. And just like in real life, you know, you don't have, and I'm not saying that Scorsese's way is wrong or something, yeah. but mostly, mostly Scorsese's films are retrospective. And, you know, this, this notion of the main character kind of sitting there at the end and looking back and saying, Oh, <laughs> look at, look at my life. Like, uh, what did I do? You know, here, this, that, and the other thing, Barry never necessarily has that moment. Instead, we get his life as a complete story. It's ups and downs. You uh, already know it's going to, they tell you at the beginning, it's going to end bad. <laughs> right. I mean, pretty, pretty much, yeah. you, uh, you know, it's, it is very heavily foreshadowed and, and spoken of. And that's, you know, to me, I think that's one of the most amazing parts of it. You said, you know, you kind of look back after the first hour and you're like, wait, where did that go? <laughs> And I think that is that is so indicative of what this movie is accomplishing. It's you know it's making you realize it's like wow this dude like half this dude's life is just gone and like <laughs> we we took nothing you know nothing long term from it. There was nothing gained from all of his you know screwing around and you know gambling and all that stuff. It really amounted to nothing. That I love that that kind of just hits you like a ton of bricks like halfway through the movie. Instead of, you know, instead of necessarily giving you that moment at the, at the end of the movie where you're like, you get to, oh, well, look at that really all accounted for nothing. It kind of is, it's almost, you know, in those movies like that where it's retrospective, I was going to say there's something poetic about it, you know, where it's at the end. But when you have that realization halfway through, it's not poetic. It's frightening. It's, you know, kind of pathetic. It's, uh... yeah, well, he has that realization and he's like, oh, well, maybe I should like have a family. <laughs> and then he just like kind of uh very quickly uh is able to um to woo the, uh, one of the richer women in england and uh scare her husband into having a heart attack uh smooth <laughs> sm- smooth operating there and uh and then it's like oh well i mean i yeah obviously maybe he was more uh drawn to this woman by her looks and money than actual any real connection he has with her but at the same time it's like yeah you could probably come live a comfortable life the rest of your life now if you really just uh want to sit and be content but he's like you know what i'm just gonna like just go on a years-long hedonistic bender and totally neglect my wife and hopefully it all works out and it it ultimately doesn't like what what did you think about just we come to that realization like you said it's kind of a wallop halfway through the movie and then he just uh walks into some good fortune and i should say there i want to talk about the funny moments in this movie but there's really it wasn't as funny as i initially thought it was going to be and i didn't think that was a bad thing it was just like the way it had been described to me and i heard there obviously are similarities to the favorite but like i was expecting maybe something closer to the favorite 
which is fine that it's not that, but like there are two moments where I laughed a, a, a ton. And one of them was when he like actually just gets like the, just gets handed the big bag of money when he's like disguised as the Chevy, Chevalier. And he's just like, Oh, I didn't know it was going to be this easy. So that's one time where he kind of like walks into a fortune. And obviously, like you said, he ends up not really mounting anything. But then he, uh, in the second half of the movie, he uh, has his family and he just like wastes it all away. What, what did you think about how the first half of the movie kind of like informed the choices that he made in the second half of the movie? I think, you know, it's it's very much springs out from this notion that we as audiences have a tendency to want to like protagonists. It's, it's natural to be introduced to a character and to, you know, put yourself in that character's position and try to reason alongside the character and learn with the character and experience with the character. And I think the movie uh, does a fantastic job of kind of burying the lead with, with Barry where, we keep wanting to think that he's going to be a better person than he is. And his, you know, we have these little ups and downs in his life, but ultimately his, his character arc is a linear trend downward. There's there's very little redemption for him. What's ironic uh, too, is that, you know, like you said, you keep cheering for him to do something better. And probably the, the single most, magnanimous good-hearted action that he takes and not killing Bullington in the duel he's been such a piece of shit his whole life that ultimately doesn't really like amount to anything because Bullington shoots him anyway which is kind of like it's kind of a cruel irony right yeah I mean and I, I think there is a whole parallel with Bullington um that is uh really fascinating to look at too because we get these sort of implied cyclical uh, narrative elements where Barry's story begins, you know, with him, uh, you know, committing to a duel he really probably should not be involved in out of passion, out of a desire to, you know, enforce his own ego and masculinity and whatnot. And, you know, his story sort of closes with Bullingdon doing the same thing to him. Bullingdon being his you know, his adopted son and uh, somebody who Barry never treated with respect, somebody who spent his entire, his entire, you know, young life feeling emasculated and made to be a child and whatnot. And so he does the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he goes to Barry and, and, you know, says that he's going to duel for his mother's honor, which, yeah, that's great and all, but we know it's not really, it's not really about, it's not about his mother. It's about Bullingdon and about his, his own feelings uh, of emasculation. And I think in, in that one small moment of redemption, Barry, you know, burns his shot only because he sees himself yeah and he you know we don't maybe he dislikes what he sees you know that part is left ambiguous to the viewer but the fact of the matter is is his one uh you know unambiguously good if you will action is that he basically just lets he lets a younger version of himself make the same mistakes (laughs) yeah 
Yeah, and I and not that the not that the point of the movie is that like money can't buy you happiness or anything, but it is kind of funny that it, it does speak to like maybe the movie just being about trying to find a purpose in life, like you said, and just human purpose in general, I guess. Where that like Barry is not really born into money, and I guess I guess it's kind of implied he had maybe like a just not a poor upbringing, but like a middle class upbringing where he's in close proximity to a lot of people with a lot of money, or, or not even that. But like he, no, I, I shouldn't even say that. But like uh, having uh, the love of his life or i shouldn't say love of his life because i mean your cousin shouldn't be your love of your wife but uh the, ha- having his first love taken from him by her family because they want to marry her off and leverage her into getting a lot of money that probably kind of largely informed a lot of the decisions he made the rest of his life and how he saw the world and uh so him not being into mo- being born into money to begin with only being exacerbated by that kind of like led him to kind of have this constant need to prove himself whereas bullington is like born into a lot of money to be fair Barry kind of wastes most of it, uh, is from what we see, but like he's born into a lot of money and that, and that, that, that alone isn't enough to like have him be content in life. He needs to assert his, needs to assert himself against Barry and like try and find his own way in the world. And he goes, goes away for a while before kind of coming back to like, you know, uh, like you said, defend his mother's honor, quote unquote. Uh, and it's just kind of funny that both those guys kind of end back at the same point. And it's kind of cyclical, despite the fact that they had very different starting points in life. They kind of ended up in the same place. Well, of course. And I think, you know, right there, what you just said, I mean, I, I don't know if this is necessarily one, this is, um, you know, the ending card of the movie, which is not necessarily a spoiler, but the, you know, the final epilogue title card, which says something to the effect of, you know, all the dramatis persona herein uh, lived during the reign of King George the third uh, and basically says, you know, whatever life they might have had, whatever, you know, their their quarrels, their fights, you know, handsome or ugly, they're all dead now. It's a, you know, <laughs> they're all they are all equal now, which I think is that is, you know, that is such a that is a, a really brilliant way to end the film and to kind of, you know, slam home you know, put the nail in the coffin, if you will, of that theme and this kind of idea that it's like, you know, all these characters spend years of their life, uh, you know, fighting over money and over status and power. And, you know, like you said, money can't buy you happiness. And at the end of the day, all of them are going, you know, the, the, the chess pieces may have been arranged differently, but they all go back in the same box. So, yeah, no, very well put. Uh, what do you think about just, you know, they were, from what I read about this movie, they were like very, I mean, I guess it's not uncommon for uh, Kubrick production, but like, what well, it took like over a year to film, right? Uh, it was like, a, it was a process. Um, what do you think about like, I, I mean, not that like you can't make a movie that looks like this without going through a prolonged production, but like, how, how do you think it ultimately like turned out from just like a, a visual standpoint? Because I, I found it pretty striking. Yeah, I mean, I, uh, it's a it's a fascinating film um, from from a production standpoint. Basically, uh, fun little detour, if you will. Uh, part of the reason why so Kubrick already has a fear of flying. Right. So, That's why he basically so, stayed in London like most of the latter part of his life, right? It, yes, stay in London. Uh, this movie, he they shot um, in Ireland for the most part. Um, and, uh, you know, so that in and of itself took a while to get set up because, you know, Kubrick even getting from London to Ireland was was not exactly, you know, easy for him, not to mention the fact that, uh, 
during uh, during everything that was going on in the background of this was the troubles occurring in Ireland. Um, oh yeah, and and there's some very interesting stories from the set uh, where Kubrick was absolutely convinced that he was going to be assassinated by the IRA. Um, apparently, at some point, they had to shoot, uh, they had to shut down production because there was 14 or 15 bomb threats called in during the course of the during the during during, during the course of the day. Um, at one point. Kubrick received a mysterious phone call where a voice on the other end of the line told him that he had 24 hours to leave Ireland. Otherwise he would have been assassinated. Um, So yeah, I mean this, all of those things in hand, it's kind of fascinating that the movie turned out as iconic. And I I read something too, about wasn't there like a, an issue with them even like portraying British soldiers on Ireland land or something like that? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's part of, that's probably why, frankly, uh, I, b- I believe that he really was threatened with assassination because, you know, here you're coming in to f- shoot a movie in Ireland and you're bringing with you 150 extras dressed in red coats. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't exactly – doesn't inspire confidence that you're going to be, you know, doing something pro-Irish. Uh, so – yeah, I mean, um, I guess more before I like try and make you talk a lot about cinematography and stuff like that. I guess what I prefer to ask you first, then, is as someone that just you, you know a lot about history. Like, uh, I mean, there's plenty of war movies out there, and, and Stanley Kubrick's done them too. But like, as far as like uh, doing it during the Seven Years' War, what do you think of that as like the setting for something like this? Because I feel like that. I didn't know I didn't know a ton about it really at all to begin with, uh, other than the fact that it was obviously larger in scope than a, a lot of them. And I was like, I kind of liked the, I, I like the sprawling feel that it gave it as far as just like watching these, watching uh, Barry wonder everywhere and the possibilities that opened up. What do you think about that as opposed to just like having this be like something like set during the War of eighteen twelve or something like that? You know. Of course, yeah, and I mean, I think that's. Uh, you know, from a historical perspective, I love it. I, I love anything that kind of takes a different piece of history than one that we're used to. Um, you know, one that we've ho- heard a story told about. But I think specifically, I felt that it was sort of it was wonderful that they used the Seven Years' War the way that they did. Like Kubrick used it the way that he did. I mean, the narrator at one point, when when introducing kind of the the I you know that that element of the story, the narrator says something to the effect of. Uh, you know, would take a, a panel of philosophers and, and historians to explain the causes of the Seven Years' War. And we don't have – basically, we don't have that kind of time. Um, and I, I just love that because I think that all flows into this live stream, this theme of how pointless, you know, things in life can be, that the war is so – you know, filled with minutia and detail that it's completely irrelevant. It doesn't, you know, it bears no import on the story that, uh, and, you know, clearly it does. It's a formative thing in Barry's life, but it's not given any more credence than his own quarrels. It's not given any more legitimacy. Um, and I think that is, you know, again, just part of this theme, this idea that this war is just as much of a bunch of guys trying to prove their masculinity as, you know, as Barry is to his own peers. Um, or Bullington is to Barry. Yeah. And even just like within that, you're dealing with like so many other like countries where he, I I don't know. It was just funny that it provided the backdrop for like such a, I mean, 
I mean, I guess it, it's be, it's based on a book, and so the story's not like wholly original, but it is interesting how it just provides the backdrop for something that uh, as uh, th- that connects as many different nationalities as like what leads him even to like getting in with the Chevalier at first, where it's like. He is an Irish guy that has been, uh, that I don't know if he's, I don't know if they know he, I can't remember. I guess, yeah, they know he's Irish when they're sending him in to meet him. Uh, the, the Germans are, and then it might, cause they think it's something that like they're trying to get back at the Austrians. And it's like, it's not, I mean, well, yeah, like the war itself might not make a lot of sense. Like that could be very convoluted, but it's like, oh no, like this is just like a very like intricate, uh, delicate balance they're trying to strike between like a lot of countries that are like kind of have very opposing viewpoints, but we're like getting, we're getting at that in a very macro way, which I just, or, excuse me, a very micro way, which I thought was like a, a pretty like creative way to like tell a relatively small story about Barry and a few other people, you know? Right. Exactly. Yeah. It allows you to focus on specific sets, you know, the certain little groups of characters. And again, you know, like I said, it just, it helps to reinforce this idea that it's basically just a giant international dick wagon contest, Mm -hmm. you know, if they had, if the movie had instead had these grand, uh, you know, expositions of, you know, regarding the the history of the Seven Years' War, or that Barry's involvement in the conflict was something more than just spying on a dude, um, you know, I think it would make the war feel too important. It would make it feel too, uh, you know, too, too large, too larger than life. And I think the decision to kind of see the war through these small experiences through, you know, a battle that nobody remembers, like the one that, you know, that Barry's first involvement in the war is a battle nobody remembers, you know, it happened before the Battle of Minden. Uh, It was not important enough to be in the history books. Or, you know, Barry's later employment as a spy, he's not, you know, spying on some 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 great king or, sta- or statesman. He's spying on some drunk Irishman who's, you know, who's yeah, a gambler. I, I, yeah, I guess, I guess it is interesting. Just that backdrop in general just, like, allows you to, like, take two steps back and be like, wow, like, it's kind of cool that Kubrick is making, like, this epic about a guy that really was just a guy. I, I, that's a weird way to put it, but, like, that's that's basically what it is. He's, 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 like, right. he's very insignificant, actually. It, the movie is absolutely dressed in the clothing of an epic, but it is not. I don't. I would. I would hesitate to call it an epic because it doesn't have the scale of something like Lawrence of Arabia, or Doctor Zivago, or you know any other epic in quotes. Yeah. You know. No. Yeah. Definitely. I. You know. I. I agree, and it, it's. It's just. It's just funny to like think about this guy's. This guy's life and how you get kind of so invested in it and it just feels like it's, it obviously is a big production. It feels like a lot. And then you, you really think about it and it's like, Oh wow. Like we just learned about this one guy. that's just like, um, just like a, a speck. I, I, I just had a thought too. I, cause you know, I've been, I, throughout this whole entire quarantine, I've been like watching these three hour movies. I've just been trying to knock them out because it's like, if, if I have all these movies that like, I've always thought about watching, it's like, Oh, do I really have time for like a three plus hour thing now? And I mean, I've been repeating myself on every podcast. Just, I'm trying not, I'm not patting myself on the back for doing this. It's just cause it's, it's kind of like almost like I'm ashamed that it's taken me so long to get around to some of these movies. But one of the ones I did was, uh, I watched the director's cut of Margaret, like about five or six weeks ago. And it's funny. It's like, not that this has really anything to do with like that movie, but it's like, I feel like that movie almost kind of does the same thing where it's like, there's like, I, th- I think that the director's cut of that movie is like th- about exactly as long as this one, like three hours and seven or eight minutes. And probably like 10 minutes of that is just like Kenneth Lonergan wandering around New York with his camera. 
and uh and and it, and it i think i think it's almost like the same idea where he's just like here's this like self-absorbed teenage girl and i'm going to tell you this epic story that she gets involved in but like i'm not going to stop reminding you how she's just like one spoiled teenage girl in all of new york and it's like a very small story in in light of all that i don't know that was just like a thought i had that was like these two movies don't have anything to do with each other but it's kind of like the same general idea where it's like you're reminding it that like these characters might like be very self-centered and think they're the center of the world but like they're really not you know yeah, or even, or you know, to loop this back to Scorsese. Yeah. Uh, you know, you look at something like The Irishman. Yeah, which that's is just a, that's another just story. A guy who's like off to the side. Yeah. Right. His he is circling the drain of power, if you will. You know, he is he is in the spheres of influence of people who are important, but he himself is not important, and he dies unknown. You know, and that's kind of I feel like uh, certainly an, an element of Barry Lyndon. You know, is yeah just epic scale for non-epic subjects no so. for sure for sure uh i want to i want to give you an opportunity too to talk about just like any other uh any other f- funny stuff from this movie i mean again like i said I, the first time we talked about it i think w- was in connection with the favorite but i hadn't seen barry Lyndon at that point were there any moments in this movie that like crack you up i know you'd seen it before but you're rewatching it with your with your girlfriend and uh i'm sure in revisiting it for like at least the first time in a couple of years is there anything about this movie that like you're like that still makes you laugh. Stuff that still make well, obviously the narration. I mean, I've spoken mm-hmm. about it already in this, but uh, I just love uh, Michael Horndern did the uh, did the the narration for it. Oh yeah, um, and uh, he's just his delivery is so fantastic, and it it totally is the right uh, vibe, if you will, for the for for the movie and for kind of the, this sort of passive absurdity to it. Uh, I think that's where, you know, I, I, obviously I love the favorite. It was one of my, it was my top movie for 2018. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the favorite is much more pointed and it's a, and it's absurdity, mm-hmm. you know, it's much more specific and, and intentional part of all of Kubrick's films, honestly, even his funniest films, I think the humor lies in that you're not really sure if it's humor. Hmm. And so I think, the narration is certainly a, an aspect of that. This sort of, you know, highfalutin, uh, you know, very elevated narration that really, uh, you know, kind of does not give you much insight into anything. And sometimes it sounds almost like it's intentionally supposed to be, you know, confusing you and things like that, or misleading you. Well, I like I like what you um, said about like you're not really sure how funny it's supposed to be. Cause that is how I felt in like the second scene of the movie where like he is like his cousins hitting on him. And I was like, this seems like ridiculous. Is, is this supposed to be f- as funny as I find it? And I wasn't like all out laughing and I realize now, yeah, they probably wanted you to laugh at how absurd this was, but what made me laugh the most. And I don't know if I was supposed to be laughing the whole time. And it's, it involves the narration too, uh, though, was when I, I, just from the second that she showed up on screen, I started laughing at the German woman that he has like the torrid three day affair with. And I, I, as as soon as she shows up, I like started laughing just because that like, that felt so ridiculous. I guess her, her name is Frau Lieschen. And I was just because, you know, it's funny. We talked about this is another thing we've talked about a couple of times before where uh, like epic war movies might have this interlude where they come across a lonely woman. We talked about it in 1917. We talked about it in Overlord. It's in a, it's in it's in the movie Fury and probably a lot of other stuff that maybe even came before this movie. But 
I've seen that kind of that that kind of uh, beat repeat itself in movies that came after Barry Lyndon. So it was just kind of funny watching it in real time because I still think we were supposed to laugh at it in Barry Lyndon, but it felt like it was spoofing movies to me that came out after Barry Lyndon. It just felt like it was almost like making fun of those movies that had were still thirty years away from coming out. And I was just like laughing the whole time it was happening. But then probably the funniest bit of narration in the whole movie came when like Barry's leaving her and thinks it's like such an emotional moment for him. And the narrator says, he basically says as much and then says, but little did he know her heart had been stormed and occupied many times, many times before Barry came to invest in it, but said it in such a way that like way funnier than I just said it. And I would just like, I totally lost it. And I was like, wow, this is kind of hilarious. Like a movie can like have a moment that is like that funny. And then like, probably within the next half hour, something that's going to be like actually very emotionally devastating. Right. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's, you know, that's partially Kubrick and partially, you know, Tony Lawson, the editor, just making these decisions to, to place the narration above something that it does not necessarily, you know, that the, the tone is different, the tone between what's being said and what's being shown on screen. Um, well, yeah, well, the tone in that, in that whole entire five minute scene basically had been such that like, that almost could have gone either way. Like I was laughing at it. And then if you say the line poorly, like I just did, her heart has been stormed and occupied many times before Barry came to invest in it. Like that could actually be like a totally, you could read that totally straight, uh, depending on the context in the movie, but they pull it off in such a way where you just know it's a it's a hilarious double entendre. Yeah, yeah, and the movie's full of that. And I think you know we we want to get back to this. The, you know, other things that I thought were you know that I caught that were funny maybe yeah. on this time around when I was watching it. Um, you know, I think we've got this. You know, we've established this notion that the greater theme, you know, of of the kind of the pointlessness of of a lot of human life and a lot of human rituals, if you will. And something that I noticed this time around that I, I was kind of chuckling at, I didn't want to totally, uh, you know, spoil my feelings on the matter to, to Haley, to my girlfriend before. But, um, uh, at the beginning when we're first introduced to John Quinn, Mm -hmm. to the, the woman, sorry, the man that, uh, that Nora Brady, that, uh, Barry's cousin and does end up marrying, um, it's it's so ridiculous when we're first introduced to him and he's you know we were introduced to him as this you know very important general and i was like laughing at how ridiculous he is when you first see him such a zero yeah strut well and he's just strutting around like a peacock (laughs) and it's i feel like that is a very intentional visual connection there that he's you know he's he's got his sword out with his chest puffed Mm -hmm. out and he's got this very you know regal elaborate march and you know as we learn later on he's just kind of an idiot (laughs) um and um you know i've i've was paying it more attention this time around to all those elements, all those times where, uh, human ritual, where the, you know, the things that we do to impress other people or the things that we do that are, you know, that we've established as normal or, you know, normal behaviors, how they're all portrayed as kind of ridiculous. And another scene, for example, when, uh, the, the Chevalier and Barry cheat uh, the Prince of Turbingen at cards, and they, uh, you know, the, the Prince of Turbingen, as you know, as he's realizing what's kind of going on, he stands up and he's like, "I don't know how, but I know that I've been cheated." And you know, instead of really having any kind of confrontation with the Chevalier, he has this like they have this whole conversation where no, neither of them are saying anything. <laughs> 
the, the prince keeps accusing the chevalier of cheating. The chevalier keeps denying that he's cheating. And then the prince is like, well, I'm just not going to pay you. Hmm. Um, and I thought it was another great example of, you know, this sort of the ritual, this idea. It's like, well, we can't we can't fight over this. We have to, you know, they'll have they can have a duel later on. But we need to, you know, we need to have this conversation. It's like three minutes of them not really saying anything to each other. Uh, and I just loved that that was, you know, it kind of gets more and more ridiculous as you sit there with it. Yeah. Yeah. One thing that we didn't talk about was the scene where, uh, he, uh, where he, where Bullington just crashes his mother's, uh, birthday party and gets in the, he and Barry get in the fight and it just, it, it reflects really poorly upon Barry. And it, it seems like that kind of like, he probably, he seemed to think that like just, uh, a norm of like just like kind of beating your kids when they get out of line it seemed totally fine to him and in a way that almost like backfires on him which is kind of funny because like what you're saying where like a lot of this stuff that is really normal at the time is normal at the time like it seems absurd to the audience but it actually is absurd in that moment to the audience that's in that room i i, I just thought about that because that seemed like a somewhat important scene that we hadn't talked about yet uh, of course yeah and i think um you know uh, that's an important scene uh from a stylistic perspective too um that there's only two times in the entirety of Barry Lyndon where um, handheld camera is used. Oh. Um, every other shot is done on steady cam, dolly, or a tripod. Yeah, you know, makes tripod sense. shot. Yeah. Uh, there's only two 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 scenes in the entire movie that are shot with a handheld camera. It's that scene uh, where Bullington and Barry get in a fight at uh, the mother's birthday party. And the other scene is when Barry has the fist fight with the soldier. With, right, I think his right. name is Tool um, at the British camp. And to me, I felt like, okay, well, this is a very specific stylistic element. You know, if we're, we come from this place of thinking that Kubrick's not doing anything unintentionally. Yeah. You know, there's a very specific reason why he's chosen to use this, the, you know, handheld camera in these, in only these two scenes. And I think it's to, to draw a parallel to yeah. show that, you know, for Barry beating his kid is, is just the same as, you know, beating up this dude in the military, that it's just him proving his masculinity. It's him. He has to cement his, you know, his position. And like you said, it, it doesn't occur to him. It doesn't, Barry doesn't even process that what he's doing, even as ritualistic and as, you know, as maybe as normal as it might be behind closed doors is just totally unthinkable in this audience of multiple people. Yeah, we didn't, we didn't, we also didn't talk that much about his other kid. I don't know if there's as much to say about that because I think it's pretty self-explanatory, like what the movie's doing there, uh, where like I th- at that point he's lost everything else and lost any chance of like making any money for himself like he's aspiring to even throughout the early part of his marriage. And he's trying to like get a title, make a name for himself, do whatever. And at a certain point he has nothing left besides the other kid. And I think it's kind of c- clear he just becomes like an over-invested parent trying to like make sure he has like any kind of legacy, but it's doing it more for him than he is for the kid. And it goes just about how you think. And the movie doesn't really hide the fact that it's going to end really badly in that regard too. But did you have any other thoughts just on like how it handled that? Cause I felt like that was another big part of his life that we just hadn't touched on. And I wanted, I wanted to at least shout it out before we finished up here. Well, yeah. I mean, I think of course that's, that is probably the most, you know, probably the most emotionally earnest and impactful scene in the whole movie. It's the, it's the scene that comes with the least amount of strings attached to it, if you will. Mm-hmm. Barry's kid, you know, his, his legitimate child, uh, Brian, I think is his name. Yeah. Uh, Brian did not, you know, deserve his, his punishment, if you will. And I think that's, you know, we, that it, it's, it's sad 
and it feeds into the theme from the other way. Um, is that we've been maybe feeling that all of you know Barry's misdeeds are what's leading to him, you know, to his loss of status and his loss of position. His downfall is of his own doing. And while that may be true to an extent, he, you know, you reap what you sow. But I think that, that is a, a total memento mori from Kubrick. You know, again, just you know him saying, "Look, you can do you can do everything right. You can be an innocent kid." And you can still die. Mm-hmm. You can still you could still have the most insignificant and quick and uh, you know unfortunate life. And you know it certainly is. Yeah, it is a cold, you know, wet slap of reality. Yeah, it's know, rough. Two thirds of the way in. Yeah, just very very tough to watch. I I, I guess the only other question I had for you was: Do you have any thoughts on? Because going back and reading about this movie, it seems like. Uh, the opinions on Ryan O'Neill even being cast in the movie, let alone his performance, were fairly divisive. And it was honestly like I I didn't really take objection to his performance or anything. It was a little confusing at first because like I think I missed the first time the narrator said the movie was like set in Ireland, and they don't really like go out of their way to give a lot of these people some of these people Irish accents. And like Ryan O'Neill just talks like Ryan O'Neill. Uh, so I, I was like, and, and they even make some kind of comment about Americans, even in the first 10 minutes. And I was like thinking like, wait, is this set in America? And I was like, very confused. It's cause he's like talking like Ryan O'Neill though. Like that was obviously a choice. I'm sure they could have told him to try an Irish accent. And like you said, so it was like an intentional choice. It's like, well, let him do it that way. Uh, what did you think about him? And I mean, I, I feel like you've probably seen a few more essential Ryan O'Neill movies than I have. Cause I guess I really haven't seen much besides this and, Paper Moon and What's Up Doc and maybe one other thing I'm forgetting. And this certainly feels like very different for him and what he was doing at that time. Uh, what do you think about this Kubrick's choice to go with an actor like that compared to the kind of actors he normally worked with and how it ultimately worked in the role? Because I know you really like this movie, so I'm sure you didn't find it bad or anything. But did you do you have any strong opinions on that? Because it seems like a lot of people did at the time. Yeah, I mean, and I, I think I could probably understand at the time why people would have those opinions. Um because Ryan O'Neill, you know, was not at the time in the you know 60s and 70s, you know, kind of at the at the tail end of the height of the epic, if you will, you know, the widely accepted form for being an epic actor was to be a British theater actor, was to be you know Laurence Olivier or Peter O'Toole or whatever, um, and to, that was you know that was who was allowed to be in epics, and or so or, or even to- or even someone not known for comedies, which it seems like he kind of was at that moment. Right. And I think I and to, yeah, you're right. You're right that, you know, Ryan O'Neill was known for comedies. But I think what I would say is that when my feeling is that when Stanley Kubrick was casting for this movie, uh, he wasn't thinking about whether or not Ryan O'Neill had been in comedies. He was thinking about whether Ryan O'Neill had played a scumbag before. Um, and I think that when he thought about that, it makes perfect sense. Huh. You know, he's he's played, you know, He's played lovable buffoons or whatever, and yeah, I mean, to an extent, that was kind of who he was up until that point. But I think you you have to realize there's a kernel of sort of 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 darkness to the Ryan O'Neill characters from before Barry Lyndon, um, whether that be you know uh, Moses in Paper Moon, who yeah, he's just a you know kind of lovable buffoon, but he is a con man. A con he man, is a yeah. crim. 
he's a criminal. Uh, you know, what's up, Doc? There's there, there's a darkness to all of his characters. You know, maybe not to you know Rodney Harrington on on Peyton Place or whatever, but in in his film roles up until that point, which were limited, that's a that that's what I feel like the idea behind casting Ryan O'Neill was, and it was certainly. Uh, a bold decision for the time, but it was the same way that you know when when he cast uh, when Kubrick cast Kier Dulia in uh, in two thousand one. Mm. It's like this guy that nobody's ever heard of to play, <laughs> to play to play the lead in a in a big budget you know Hollywood science fiction film. I think you know just like in two thousand one, the casting Kier Dulia was a very specific statement of this is not going to be a typical you know, science fiction movie. I don't want you to, you know, identify with the hero of this movie, if you will. Um, in the same way that that was the decision for that film, I think the same could be said of Ryan O'Neill for, for Barry Lyndon, yeah. where, you know, it, it is certainly a bold choice and it's an alienating choice. And that's the idea. Kubrick doesn't want you to think of this movie as just another epic. Um, there's, there's something else going on here. And I think when you, when you look at Ryan O'Neill in that light, I think it makes, it's pretty clear. Yeah, no, he, the character obviously of Barry, like has something darker going on other than his, uh, his pure ambition that you see early on in the movie. And it obviously it manifests itself, it's manifests itself later on. And I, and I agree. I just think that like, I might not have had, I don't have the same level of Ryan O'Neill baggage that some people might at the time. I still, I still thought he, it, it seemed like he got the character very well and, uh, did everything Kubrick asked of him, even if it was just a little funny that like we're told over and over again, this guy's an Irishman and he's not, he doesn't sound Irish at all. <laughs> um, O'Neill, I guess O'Neill's kind of an Irish name though. I don't know. Um, do, do you have any, do you have any other performances you want to shout out? I didn't have any other strong feelings about it. I thought it was pretty well acted, but I mean, I thought I found it interesting that like this movie got like an Oscar nomination in basically every category except any of the acting categories. So what was there anyone else you felt was worth sh- shouting out before we finished up? Yeah, I mean you're right. It's a hard one because there's no obviously there's not a uh, you know necessarily a lot of standout roles, especially in, in this in the central performances. I will say, just quickly, uh, Murray Melvin, who plays uh, Reverend Runt, the, uh, the the tutor for the. Oh um, yeah, that guy has has a powerful scene. Yeah. Yeah, well, and I mean he, he obviously he's more of an aesthetic piece for me. <laughs> I mean he's just a very <laughs> Weird. He's a weird-looking guy, and uh, you know that's certainly an aspect that he brings to every role that he's in. And he's, uh, you know, he's been around the block. He did a lot of movies with Ken Russell, um, who certainly uh, used him in that regard. I just put also. up his. I just put up his Wikipedia page. Still alive. There's a picture of him from six years ago. Still looks very weird. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, he's 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 played some weird-looking dudes, um, and that's. Uh, I, I feel like that was a great choice. But for me. Uh, the standout for this film is Leon Vitale as uh, as Bullingdon. I mean, mm. he was just as far as like actual acting goes. I yeah. mean, I think he did he did a phenomenal job, and um, he's got a really really interesting story. That this this is a kid who uh, was you know at the, he he was a, really a kid at the time. He was he was pretty young. He had done you know little bit parts here and there with uh like british tv shows like he was on z cars i think and you know a couple of other uh you know very you know shows you would know if you're british (laughs) Hmm. uh and then oh yeah i did i forgot i read about him he kind of became like a crew member for kubrick yeah well so basically he you know he met kubrick and uh a little bit before 
uh, Barry Lyndon and, you know, they kind of just gelled really well. And then, uh, uh, Kubrick cast him as Bullingdon in Barry Lyndon. And I mean, it was really a, you know, it was a breakout role. I think, you know, I don't, I don't know that he was necessarily going to be Oscar worthy, but I think at the time there was definitely some buzz that like, Oh, who's this, you know, this new kid, he could really, yeah. you know, he's really a good, great actor. And then basically Vitaly just like gave up his entire career to be Kubrick's <laughs> assistant for the rest of his life. <laughs> like he, you know, there, and there's a, there's a movie about Leon Vitali called film worker. Oh. Um, it came out a, a couple of years ago. Um, and it's sort of, it, it really, you know, and it's kind of funny cause it, in a way it sort of deals with the theme of Barry Lyndon where it's just sort of like this kid, you know, at his age, at that point in his life, he met Kubrick and Kubrick was this genius to him. And he, you know, he gave up all, like all of his ambitions. He was like, this is the guy I want to work with for the rest of my life. He's like, I don't <laughs> care about my own personal glory or anything. And he never did. I mean, he really was. He basically that was his only acting role. That's so wild. Um, I, 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 I guess I had his IMDb or his Wikipedia pulled up the other day, and I, I noticed the stuff, and I, I don't think I realized just how little he actually acted. Like he was just like, oh yeah, he popped up in like as like an extra basically in a few of Kubrick's other movies, and that was, that was it. Like I, I saw the stuff where he was like a technical worker on some of the other ones. I was like, oh, that's interesting. Maybe he just wanted to go hang out with Kubrick every now and then. And he's like, sure, you can be a crew guy for this if you want to hang out. I didn't realize that it was like he devoted his life to doing that. Like, I I, I kind of want to go watch the documentary now. <laughs> yeah, you should check it out. I mean, basically, he he was Kubrick's, like, research assistant and his on-set, like, personal assistant kind of thing um, for The Shining and Full Metal Jacket. And then he got, you know, he kind of went, went back to work with him again with Eyes Wide Shut. He actually appears in Eyes Wide Shut, but he's also, you know, he, again, was just kind of, you know, in the periphery on that film. You know, sort of the funny thing is an, another little diverging story here. Uh, an Eyes Wide Shut Todd Field, uh, who is now a director who did uh, Little Children and In the Bedroom. Todd Field plays uh, uh, the, the character, the pianist, I forget what his name is, in Eyes Wide Shut. And um, at that point, Todd Field was in Eyes Wide Shut and he met Vitaly on the set of that movie and was like, oh, like, dude, you're a genius. You have the entire institutional memory of Kubrick <laughs> like, in your brain. Uh, and then he brought Vitaly on to, to work with him on in the bedroom and on funny. little children. Yeah. Um, and that's, uh, to me, I just, I, I thought that was, you know, it's just, he's a really fascinating guy. Um, and it's, it's very interesting to me specifically because I really do think he is the best performance in the entire movie. Yeah. That, 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 that is crazy. I'm glad you explained a little more of his life to me. Cause like, I, I, I kind of just got had an inkling there's something different about this guy, and I just didn't realize there was that much to it. So I'm very curious to go learn more about him. And um, also, I guess I need to probably try and complete a little bit more of my uh, Stanley Kubrick personal uh, watch list. Uh, Elijah, before we wrap up, anything else about – any parting thoughts on Barry Lyndon? Anything else we didn't touch on that you wanted to quickly discuss before we uh, finish this thing up? Yeah, I mean, I, we didn't talk a whole lot about the visual aspects and the cinematography and whatnot, uh, and I don't want to, you know, totally bog us down with more conversation. But it is a very, very interesting film from a behind-the-camera perspective. Um, basically, Kubrick did not want his movie to look like other movies uh, of the same ilk. Um, he didn't want it to be this, you know, overlit, super dramatic, stagey. It didn't feel too uh, glossy, and I think a lot yeah. stuff like that t- definitely could, right? Right. And so part of what he did in that regard was he shot with about as little artificial light as possible. 
um, in order to recreate the look of paintings from the time period and of, you know, the way things really would have looked at the time period. But the only problem, of course, is that uh, when you're shooting in incredibly low light like that, it's it's very, very, very difficult to get a good image. You know, you, you, ha you know, film needs light. You need light to make film. Uh, and when you're shooting with basically just candles, it's pretty tough. Um, and so Kubrick actually went to Zeiss, who is a camera manufacturer, sorry, a lens manufacturer, Carl Zeiss. Um, they're from, uh, I want to say from Germany. Yeah, they're Germany, uh, from Germany. They developed uh, lenses for NASA, for Apollo, for the Apollo missions, um, because, you know, there's obviously not a whole lot of artificial lighting on the moon. So mm -hmm. they, they developed the lenses that were on the cameras that were taken to the moon. So Kubrick went to Zeiss. Oh, so that's where that conspiracy theory comes from? Uh, maybe, right? Uh, but okay. Zeiss uh, basically hand-manufactured these ridiculous lenses uh, that could basically operate with no artificial light, you know, very, very, very little artificial light. Um, I forgot. I, so, I, I forgot. I'd written that. I'd read that the Bullington dual scene, uh, was all natural light. Yeah. I mean, the Bullington dual scene, plenty, many scenes in the movie were all natural light, you know, basically the scenes where they're at the card table, you know, and all you have are the candles. Yeah. You know, that, that is very realistic uh, in terms of, you know, basically what you see is what you get. It's just natural light. Um, and, you know, when you combine that with uh, he, you know, Kubrick did a whole, a whole lot of visual research for this. Um, and there are many scenes in the movie for astute viewers where he has either, uh, you know, made great reference to or has literally taken uh, arrangements from like Hogarth paintings and Watteau and Gainsborough, um, whether they be you know, scenes of people or just landscape shots that are, he, he's basically recreated the paintings in hmm. real life. Um, hmm. and it's, it's done very, very quietly, but you know, with, when you think, when you consider the difficulty that would go into doing something like that, uh, it's very interesting. I, I, I was just going to say, like, I, I, I don't have the technological know-how to really explain how he pulls off a lot of he, what he does in the way Elijah does, but I will just say, like, I think part of what allows you to, like, kind of get through some of those stretches of the movie where, like, you know, it seems like nothing happens for an hour. Like, you don't really care. Like, a lot of movies, you might just get bored and buy, some buy like, pacing or storytelling of that manner, but, like, I think part of the, a large reason for that is that, like, it, it is so nice to look at, and I think that that goes a long way when it's like, oh, wow, like this movie just looks really beautiful. You don't really care if like technically not a ton is happening on the screen. And I think that's just a credit to all the, the care and attention to detail that Kubrick put in, like uh, what this movie looks like. And uh, did you already say the cinematographer's name is John Alcott. I feel like we should just give him a shout out as, as okay. long as we're talking about all this stuff. So. Yeah, John Alcott won an Oscar for his work on this. It was also one of the first movies to use the Steadicam. Uh, period, and as kind of you know why John Alcott, who did John Alcott, did not invent the Steadicam, but he is largely uh, he's largely credited with being the cinematographer who made it uh, you know viable. Um, and his his work on this movie and his work on The Shining, um, and and his work, sorry, it's you know starting with basically starting with 2001, but starting more with Clockwork Orange through The Shining. Or it's the stretch of movies that essentially took the Steadicam from being like this weird, you know, funky piece of technology that you know maybe a few people would use here and there to being something that 
you know, is now ubiquitous with cinematography. So, gotcha. all right. Well, I think that about wraps up, uh, Barry Lyndon. I, Elijah and I both obviously highly recommend it. We just talked about it for a while. And again, it's three hours and eight minutes, but y'all don't have any other excuse right now. You're all at home. Uh, give it a shot. Or I'm guessing if anyone's still listening, they've probably already watched it, but tell someone else not to be afraid to do so as well. So, uh, this is this should be the time if you're ever going to get around to that three hour movie that you've just always said you're going to watch. This is now the time to do it. Uh, but speaking of, speaking of, speaking of sitting around and watching stuff, uh, Elijah, we're kind of wrapping this up by uh, having people recommend anything they have been watching while they've been quarantined and cooped up. Do you have anything? Uh, I know uh, you might want to be a company man and plug HBO Max because I know that's coming soon. That'll give people a lot of other opportunities. But do you have any other? Anything else you want to tell someone to watch that you've recently revisited or watched for the first time that you're like, hey, this is something good to do while you're just sitting at home? Yeah, uh, obviously I will plug. Uh, May 17th is when Snowpiercer debuts on TNT. And then uh, May 27th is when HBO Max go live. Um, That'll be available online and in a variety of app formats, mobile and for home platforms like uh, Apple TV and Roku. Things that I've watched... Um, I know we briefly talked about, I feel like, uh, I think, uh, three Kings, Mm. uh, is a movie that I revisited, uh, recently. And, uh, it's just a movie that I feel like keeps getting more relevant and more relevant. It it was ahead of its time when it came out in 1999. Uh, it's a war film, a war, a black comedy war heist film set during, uh, set during the Gulf war. And, And, uh, it came out in 1999, and it was released in 2000, uh, re-released rather in 2004, um, because of how relevant it had gone on to become following the Iraq War. Uh, and I feel like it's uh, it's just a movie that keeps getting more relevant by the by the minute. Um, so yeah, certainly uh, if you if you've gone through all of the quarantine, uh, all of the uh, sci-fi post-apocalyptic virus destroys the world movies, you know we can move on to some. Wars Destroying the Human Condition kind of movies. So oh, Great. Just lovely. Uh, very uplifting <laughs> recommendation there. Uh, I, I, as far as like, other things I might want to recommend, I, I, I feel like recommending it because I, I was only driven to uh, watch it. I, I, w- I would have watched it anyway because it was kind of like a recommendation from my grandpa and I was excited. I wanted to tell him I watched it. But what finally got me to just go ahead and watch The Dirty Dozen was because I saw it was going off on Netflix on April 30th. And uh, I don't know when I'm going to actually get around to like posting this episode because I might do it like – on the tr- I might get I might get it posted in a couple of days. We're recording this on like the on the twenty sixth uh, or on the twenty seventh. So I don't know if I'll have it out in time for people to catch it on Netflix. I'm sure you could find it other places, but I very much enjoyed the Dirty Dozen. I think it's one of the uh, best films about teamwork that I've ever seen, and that's kind of a funny thing, which is which is kind of funny to say because I, I I I then I just happened like a day later to watch The Great Escape for the first time, which I mean those movies share a lot of DNA both with the cast and just the the subject matter kind of and uh, the time period and all that but i mean i i uh i just thought it was interesting to um to to, to see a couple of movies like that that like are, are are very similar in their own ways but like have their own very different plots and i i think they're both like very worthy watches if you want to go back and kind of watch world war ii films from the 60s go ahead and do that i think they're both worth checking out uh but yeah that about wraps this up elijah do you have uh you already plugged hbo max do you have any other thing else you want to plug personally I uh, know that that about covers uh, okay. it. Company man, as always. Uh, as usual, I'm Josh Chernovoy, J-O-S-H-J-U-R-N-O-V-O-Y on Twitter. Same thing on Letterboxd. Uh, podcast Twitter is Rewind Movie Pod. 
podcast gmail is therewindmoviepod at gmail.com send us any feedback you have there any other recommendations for old movies you want us to revisit uh feel free to do all that thanks to everyone for listening next week i don't know what we're talking about yet uh i know we're gonna have some interesting stuff coming we'll talk about uh both some movies new and old coming up we might revisit some james bond movies uh just kind of in anticipation of no time to die coming at the end of the year because i have some of our recurring guests are pretty familiar with a lot of those and it'd be fun to kind of go back and watch because i haven't watched a lot of them in a very long time so might do that might do something else that's a little more recent i don't know but you'll just have to wait and see so thanks for listening we'll see you next time